Welcome, welcome listeners. Thank you for choosing to join me for the second edition of Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. I'm your host, E.J. Moran, and before we go any further, the informed consent disclaimer. The material presented and opinions expressed on this website and in these podcasts here on are simply those of the individual participants that do not represent the profession of psychology or represent expert advice. They do not speak for acceptance and commitment therapy or any other therapy in general. These materials are for entertainment purposes, for professionals interested in modern cognitive behavior therapy and behavioral analysis. This information is no substitute for reading primary sources and gaining supervised therapy experience from a professional. Listen at your own risk. Awesome. All right, again, I appreciate your willingness to join me for this podcast. My plan is to put together materials about third-wave behavior therapy on these recordings and make it interesting and informative and fun. The last podcast included part one of a two-part interview with Steve Hayes. We discussed ACT-SI and the future of ACBS and also about how people in the behavior analysis community are responding to the relational frame theory research. And what I've got up next is part two to that interview where Steve discusses uh, with me what happened in human evolution that led to our ability to uh, engage in relational framing? Enjoy. Ask yes, a question. Uh, what happened in human evolution that created events that uh, let language develop and uh, become part of uh, what we do? Well, you can easily uh, sort of scratch a psychologist and have them turn into a bad biologist, and uh, I don't really want to do that and tell a just-so story, but if you... One form of this question that sometimes comes up is, given that there's continuity in the evolution of species, why would there be something new that emerges, like what's claimed in, in RFT? But what's claimed in RFT is this the ability to train a particular kind of operant. It's a very, very, very small step forward to do that. In fact, I almost suspect that you will get it. Sometimes people say it's predicted by in RFT that you won't get it in animal preparations. It's actually not in any of the written literature anywhere, that, that prediction. And I think it may be the case that you can get it. Uh, you, I would almost expect so because it's such a small step. The, well, you'd have to imagine that the small step involved being able to derive as a listener a bidirectional relation between, for example, calls, uh, uh, sort of danger signals, and the contexts that give rise to them. I can't imagine anything that would have led a speaker to derive bidirectional relations because no one's listening that could respond to it, but I can't imagine a listener. So some X numbers of tens of thousands or 100,000 or whatever years ago, you'd have to imagine that there was some small step forward in the biological bases, if that's what's involved here that made that more likely probably was always there to a degree under special learning preparations but there was no culture to do that once you're able to derive the bidirectional relation between um, uh, these kinds of uh, uh, cries and signals that indicate that it's a predator there and the context that gave rise to them you would be able to go back into those contexts more sensitive than you were before to the likelihood of a predator. Essentially, you'd be more sensitive as a result of in that context hearing a cry when you're back in that context to run at smaller cues. That could be selected. 
that may have some advantage in terms of survival. Once you have that ability, if you have the ability to do as a listener, when you're your own speaker or someone else's speaking, you're doing bidirectional relational responding. So uh, when you've got sufficient strength of sort of bidirectional learners in a listening listener role, you'd have the, the grist to allow full relational framing to emerge, but not the training grist. And the way I've thought about it, it's kind of like a cork out of a champagne bottle. You push a little bit on this side, a little bit on that side, a little bit on this side, a little bit on that side, and then it explodes. And I think you've seen over the last 10,000 years, certainly over the last 5,000 years with the evolution of written, the cultural evolution of written language, the conditions that allow this tiny, tiny, tiny step forward to explode into what we're seeing in the culture and science. One, one way to think about this, it would be like this. If you're standing at the edge of a cliff and you, and you move one, one inch forward, you may fall thousands of feet. And I think that's what's happened the human species moved one inch forward and has fallen uh, into a, a, a state in which it really is in a very, very different uh, uh, situation than the, the bird outside the window uh, in terms of the capacity to uh, develop knowledge that is progressive and that changes the, the, uh, the human condition. Uh, so I view it as a kind of a, a continuity crucial continuity in evolution is that new contains old, not that old contains new. So there is something new here. That's not discontinuity. The discontinuity is in the outcome, but the process is, is only different in a tiny, tiny little way. Um, so the theory claims. All right. Thank you very much. The cool thing about podcasts is that if you didn't understand what you heard, you can always just rewind it. Uh, but to unpack things just a little bit more, Steve started talking about scratching a psychologist and getting a bad biologist. He was alluding to the idea that many psychologists follow a mechanical, biomedical model, and they make appeals to events and evolution to explain why things are the way they are, as they are a solid fact or a just-so story. Uh, just because we might be armed with a good imagination and a knowledge of natural selection, that doesn't mean we can make guesses at what happened in the history of humankind as psychologists and count that as fact. Uh, there's a whole field of evolutionary biology that makes attempts to describe sociocultural evolution and has a long way to go before we can make solid claims about what happened uh, in the past. And even if behavior analysis and evolutionary biology make good bedfellows, that doesn't mean we can just hypothesize a truth. Steve fully admits that there's a significant degree of cautious speculation in his discussion. He explains that what is claimed in RFT is an ability to train a particular type of operant. And that's what we're talking about with relating. It is an operant. It's something that you know humans do it's only a small step forward um, when we're considering it as an operant. It's an operant just like all other operants. So suppose that there was a small change in the biological substrate that allowed the listening organism to derive a bidirectional relation between danger signals and the context that they happen in. 
again, perhaps some, some tiny change allows the listening organism to derive a bidirectional relation between danger signals and the situations in which they happen. And this is going to go on at a very primitive level, okay, if you're, if you're thinking about this. This is happening at a very primitive level. Um, perhaps the listening organism that had this biological proclivity, uh, ability to bidirectionally relate stimuli, could now react faster uh, or more intensely to danger signals, or perhaps respond to even smaller and smaller danger cues. And, and that would likely make the organism fit to that environment among other organisms. And so that biological substrate, you know, that event um, could be selected. This selection might, and let's be cautious here, might be the important first steps to a more robust bidirectional relating. Um, don't forget, relating is an operant behavior. It isn't that much different from other behavior. It develops over experience. Um, it's flexible given different contextual cues, and it's governed by antecedent and consequential control. Once there were enough listeners with this proclivity, perhaps under those conditions, we had speakers arise. And think about um, the ending of what Steve was talking about is these, you know, kind of like he made the analogy of um, a champagne cork or walking off a cliff. It's just these small, tiny steps forward. But that one step, just that one more step leads to an outcome that's a whole lot different. You know, you ever squeeze one of those champagne corks and it's just a little pressure here, a little pressure here, and then all of a sudden something else is different because of that. This is pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, I'd love to see more collaboration between evolutionary biologists and behavior analysts. There's still much, much more to consider about, you know, finding out about humankind's evolution, especially in the area of how language came about. I'd love to see more research in that, as, as I'm sure many other uh, listeners to this podcast would like as well. Um, up next, I've got an interview with Rob Zettel. He's got uh, a book out now called Act for Depression, and from what I've read so far, um, it's excellent. It's on New Harbinger, and we've got him up next. And I'm sitting with Rob Zettel. Rob Zettel was one of the first folks doing experiments on acceptance and commitment therapy, and uh, we're going to get a chance now to just hear it from him Tell us a little bit about uh, the first experiment in the early work of acceptance commitment therapy, please. I'd be glad to. Actually, the first study was my dissertation. I was Steve Hayes' first doctoral student back in UNC Greensboro, and the particular study I think you're referring to actually was my doctoral dissertation. Uh, compared cognitive therapy for depression with an early version of ACT. In fact, it was kind of pre-ACT. Um, the approach at that time was actually referred to as comprehensive distancing, was not even known as ACT. Um, but what we did in that particular study was randomly assign some depressed clients to cognitive therapy or early version of ACT and, and compared the two approaches, both in terms of some process measures and, and obviously some outcome measures. Interesting stuff. What was the uh, long term or the, uh, the results from that particular study? Well, the basic outcome data suggested 
this version of therapy, again known as comprehensive distancing, ACT, if you will, uh, compared quite favorably in terms of outcome to cognitive therapy. What was particularly interesting uh, were the process data, uh, suggesting that even though perhaps the two approaches were equally efficacious in treating depression, they seemed to operate through different processes or, or mechanisms. Neat. And the, um, from there, acceptance commitment therapy kind of got its roots, took a little bit of a break on research, and they started developing more relational frame theory work and the theory and the philosophy behind it. And then it started to um, blossom into other types of acceptance and commitment therapy interventions. You've got a book now called Act on Depression. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, I'm not sure that's the exact title, but that's the content area. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a book that should be coming out, I believe, uh, sometime in November, published by New Harbinger. Uh, it's basically a, a book for, for mental health um, practitioners, professionals, therapists, psychologists who are interested in maybe uh, applying ACT, using ACT, and some of their work with depressed clients. Great. Really appreciate you talking to me. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Enjoyed it. Functionally Speaking. A podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. Why, thank you, Steve and Jen, and especially thank you, Rob Zettel, for uh, that interview. Want to make sure that you folks that are listening get a chance to visit the new Harbinger uh, website or Amazon.com and get a hold of that act uh, for depression. Um, what I've got up next is the lovely and talented, fun-loving and hard-working Sonia Batten, and uh, she's talking to me about committed action and the goals of ACT versus the goals of traditional behavior therapy. Enjoy. Okay, it's DJ Moran here and I am at the ACT uh, Summer Institute 3 with Sonia Batten. Sonia, why don't you give us a little background, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you work. Sure, I'm uh, a clinical psychologist and I trained in graduate school with Steve Hayes and Victoria Follett at the University of Nevada, Reno, which is where I started my ACT training, and have specialized, in addition to ACT, in uh, traumatic stress and working with people who've been through traumatic events. So now I'm currently the coordinator for the trauma recovery programs for the VA Maryland Healthcare System and on the faculty at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. So doing research and clinical and training and teaching and all sorts of things related to trauma and ACT. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Um, wanted to talk today just a little bit about um, acceptance commitment therapy and its uh, relationship to traditional behavior therapy. Um, there are folks with differing opinions. Some folks say that uh, ACT is nothing more than just uh, what traditional behavior therapy is. Some folks say it's you know not even behavior therapy at all. There's a, a lot of opinion uh, that folks have. I think one of the most important pieces where the two definitely link um, is in the piece in ACT's uh, model about committed action, um, and that usually being the domain in acceptance commitment therapy treatments um, where traditional behavior therapy comes to comes in. Um, and what I'd like to you know maybe get get a sense from you is what is the difference between traditional behavior therapy. Um, uh, exposure and acceptance and commitment therapy exposure. Sure, I think it's a it's a really interesting point. 
and we, you know, I love to do exposure therapy when I'm doing traditional, you know, cognitive behavioral treatments, if that's the first line treatment that I'm doing for a, a given problem. And um, when I do a more acceptance and commitment therapy based approach, I also will use all sorts of different types of exposure. So again, um, you know, exposure can be in vivo, it can be imaginal, it can be written. There's all sorts of different ways you can do exposure. One of the key differences I see, though, is actually what the goal is of doing the exposure. Because certainly if you looked at it formally, it might look very similar between traditional behavioral exposure versus act exposure. So you might see somebody entering a shopping mall, going to a party, you know, um, writing about a difficult event they had been through. The form of it might actually look very similar. The goal, though, is quite different in the two treatments. Because the traditional sort of rationale for exposure therapy is that, um, you know, for whatever reason, somebody has a stimulus that they're avoiding because it elicits anxiety or fear. And over time, because they avoid it over and over, um, it actually makes the, the fear and the anxiety stronger. And so what you have to do with exposure therapy is you actually approach the stimulus that's been feared and avoided. You do it over and over and over. And eventually, the emotional response will habituate. It will go down. It might go up a little bit at first, but over time, if you do enough sort of um, exposures to whatever it is, it'll go down. Okay, so that's the traditional rationale. That would make sense to give that rationale from an ACT perspective because we're not talking about symptom reduction. I mean, certainly if symptom reduction happens, we're, you know, we're happy. We like to see people in as little pain as possible. And if we're doing this work from an ACT model, you can't be doing the ACT work, do your creative hopelessness, your control is the problem, start to approach willingness, and then say we're going to do this exposure piece. And the goal of the exposure piece is that, you know, if we do it enough times, you won't have that same emotional response anymore. It's inconsistent. So how we set it up, um, but I, you know, but I think that exposure is really one of the key components for effective behavior therapy, whether it's ACT, CBT, whatever. So we certainly want to include it because it makes perfect sense in our model. So the, the rationale that, that you would give in the, and the way we understand the process from an ACT perspective is that um, we identify what it is that the person is maybe not doing as much of or, or what would sort of bring up those emotions what, what's been getting in the way of them moving forward in their life. So, you know, we got to identify what their values are, and that guides what we do exposure on. And as we set it up, really when we talk to people, we talk to them about increasing um, psychological and behavioral flexibility in the presence of those stimuli. So the goal is not to approach, 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 and then, you know, once your symptoms go down, you're, you're doing well. The idea is can we approach, 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 and practice all different kinds of ways of responding when you're in that situation? You know, and so if um, for somebody, you know, it's social situations that are difficult for them, we might in fact do some imaginal and some in vivo exposure to those social situations. The goal is not to stay in the situation long enough for your anxiety to go down, though. I mean, it's fine if that happens and that, you know, there may well be some habituation going on there, but that's not our goal. Our emphasis is on can you get into those social situations and choose to go talk to somebody, choose to 
um, you know, stay in the room, even, even, you know, sort of regardless of how you're feeling, just because it's important to you, because your value is to have people in your life and to be part of a community, things like that. So um, we might not do exposure for um, the same amount of time because we're not looking at SUDS ratings. I don't ask people for their SUDS ratings in the middle of the exposure because that's not my goal. My goal is can we stay in the situation long enough for it to be meaningful and important and have the person not be immobilized by their feelings when they show up. Good explanation. I appreciate that. So it seems like committed action just doesn't stand alone as the time to do traditional behavior therapy. It is uh, very much wed uh, with uh, values, um, contacting the present moment, kind of diffusing from the thoughts that are coming up that might prevent them from doing what they really care about in that instance. Um, What I'd like to know is uh, at the VA, uh, if you treat folks with PTSD, what might uh, ACT exposure look like uh, in that context with that kind of symptom presentation or that kind of uh, clinical concern? Well, certainly you can do exposure that, again, as I said, would look very much like traditional exposure. So we might have somebody recount the um, descriptions of the traumatic events that they've been through, um, you know, whether verbally or written. You know, we, we can approach that in all sorts of different ways. What we might do a little bit differently just to add to that piece is, again, to work on some values clarification, because especially when you're working with somebody who has a a sort of chronic set of symptoms that can be described as PTSD, these are people who have spent years and years of their life where the direction of their life is determined by moving away from something avoiding something, moving away from the things that scare them or, or upset them. And, um, and so really the process of the work with, with folks with chronic, um, you know, sort of psychological problems, whether it's PTSD, substance abuse, whatever, is it involves not just reducing the symptoms, but in fact helping them orient again to what, what's important to them. And so, you know, the exposure piece might, you know, some of it might be specifically related to the traumatic event. For other people, that's not the work that needs to be done. For some people, the work is let's identify your values and what's important. And then exposure work might actually be like picking up the phone to call your daughter that you haven't talked to in two years, you know, and doing that on a regular basis. And so what we expose people to is actually quite a bit broader than just say, a traumatic memory that might have a fear or anxiety response. You know, we're going to do that same sort of willingness work with issues around guilt or shame or anger or, you know, so helping people recognize that they can they can choose to put themselves in those situations if it's important to them, if they want to be important about it, see what shows up and still be able to continue moving forward. Awesome. I appreciate uh, your time and uh, have a safe flight back. Well, thanks a lot for joining me on the second edition of Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. I've just got one more thing uh, on deck here, and it's a song that was performed by David Galanders at the ACT Summer Institute um, in 2007. The name of the song is Autopilot, and when he played it live um, at the Follies, um, there wasn't a single person uh, who wasn't moved by it. Um, People were riveted to his performance and uh, his meaningful lyrics and the way he came across as he performed it. So I've got a uh, studio version of that song for you right now, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks again for joining me. 
Do you notice? Is it just a hand?